What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, um, guys, I just got back. From a great trip, you guys held down the fort admirably. Uh, I went to CES, which it was cool, but it did really immediately make me wish that I could take a vacation because it's a lot of work to cover CES. And, uh, you know, I like exotic vacations, and that's where this whole space thing sort of popped into mind, this idea of let me really really get away from it all. Although I'm kind of curious here, I mean, because you you may have expressed a few um, frustrations with the amount of preparation that you had to do to go to CES. Sure. And the <laughs> amount of preparation to go to space is like six months of training. Yeah, but you know, 
I can sleep through that. That's easy <laughs> enough. So, yeah, we wanted to talk about space tourism, this idea of regular human beings going up into space, people who are not necessarily dedicating a significant portion of their lives to the study of space or the exploration of space, people who just want to have a chance to experience that for themselves. You know, I can imagine back in the 60s when people were watching the Apollo program on TV, mm-hmm. there was probably this sense among children at the time that like, oh, man, the like, doors this is are just, to me. yeah, they're just yeah. flying open. In a few years, I'm going to be going to space. We're going to go there on vacation. It'll be fun. It'll be like a day trip. You know, you can right. just go up and, and look at the curve of the earth out the window. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, particularly once we started landing people on the moon. And at that point, right. you're really thinking, okay, so now, now this is the future. This is it from here on out. We're not going to have a time where we're not going to the moon. And, and that then, time came pretty quickly, actually. Yeah, then we never went back. <laughs> Unless you believe that Apollo 18 movie. Uh, I have seen that Apollo 18 movie. Don't watch it. I'll, I'll, I'll save you. Uh, it's terrible. It is absolutely terrible. There, but but 100% true. <laughs> not at, not even a little bit. What's it about, like moon spiders or yes, something? Yes, it's about <laughs> moon rock spiders. Cool. Or rock moon spiders. All right, okay. episode to ask uh, conspiracy stuff about. But Yeah, yeah. Right. I, yeah. Well, okay, so we, never, we didn't go back to the moon. <clears throat> We're still going to space some. Yeah. We've got the International Space Station. Sure. Um, We've got some uh, telescopes up there and a couple mm-hmm. that are, well, one in particular that's getting ready for the big launch. So uh, We keep talking about that wacky, like, Mars One kind of thing. Yeah. We'll talk um, more about that, too. Yeah. Uh, but but I think I think that ISS right now is pretty much the inspiration. I mean, uh, kids like Chris Hadfield being up there and, yeah. and, you know, singing Space Oddity and getting people excited about the entire thing all over again. You know, it, it's he's very much, I think, our generation's answer to those terrific Apollo videos. Yeah, it, it's great to be a space enthusiast. But if you are not somebody who works at NASA, if you're not like a, a test pilot or an astronaut of some kind, how are you going to get there? Well, I mean, until fairly recently, you could get there by dropping a ton of cash. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, okay. So this requires a little bit of explanation. So uh, about a little bit more than a decade ago, you know, about 14 years ago or so, the world was in a, a space where um, the Russian space agency in, gener- in general was really strapped for cash. In fact, Russia in general was really strapped for cash, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Russians have a, a space, an actual space industry, just like the United States does. And in a lot of the U.S. space industry depends heavily on the Russians at this point uh, for their various rockets and some of the other equipment they make as well. And, of course, they're, they're partners aboard the International Space Station. So back at that time, uh, there was a company called Mircor, M-I-R-C-O-R-P. So they, they were in charge at that time, a private company in charge of the Mir Space Station. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were looking at perhaps offsetting some of the maintenance costs of the Mir by offering up the chance for private citizens to spend a hefty lump of cash in order to go up and visit the Mir uh, space station. Uh, this was great while the Mir was still, you know, in orbit. Yeah, so a couple things happened. Well, for, <laughs> first, 
there were some companies that took advantage of being able to send people up into space, but they're not space tourists, right? These were companies that sent along a specialist who was someone who would oversee the payload of uh, like something that was in the space shuttle. Uh, or in one case, there was a, a reporter for the Tokyo broadcast system called uh, Toyohiro Akiyama, who went up to the Mir space station uh, once this program was offered, uh, and it was actually the Tokyo Broadcasting System that paid the $28 million U.S. to the Russian space industry for uh, uh, Akiyama to go up there and broadcast. And Akiyama actually performed science experiments, broadcast every single day. So this was a working trip. It was not a vacation. It wasn't on a lark. Right. Yeah. So, so we don't really count that as a space tourist, but it's sort of opening up the doors for what immediately followed. So there's a guy named uh, Dennis Tito. He was a, a I've heard of him. Yeah, American businessman, uh, really wealthy investor, and um he is uh, officially the first person to pay a fee to go up into space. Now initially, his plan was also to go up and visit Mir. But like you were alluding to, Lauren, Mir did not stay up in orbit forever. They the Russian space agency actually decided to deorbit Mir. Deorbit means let it crash into crash flamings, on yeah, onto Earth. So he began to uh, actually. What happened was a uh, uh, Miracor began to partner with another company, a company that becomes really big in space tourism. A company called this is a U.S. based company called Space Adventures Limited. Oh yeah, which I thought was like a laser tag company until I looked more into this. But no, it's uh, these. This is actually the organization that coordinates with, say, the Russian Space Agency to make sure people can go up into space. I kind of uh, want them to also do laser, laser tag. tag. That, that might be, be pretty, part of the training. That- I don't know. You <laughs> never know. You might run into space aliens and you have to make sure your accuracy is really high. Moon up. spiders. Yeah, yeah, moon spiders. Am I correct in saying that all of the people, all of the space tourists so far who have been up there have been with space adventures? As yeah. far as I'm aware, yeah. If you don't count Akiyama, absolutely. Yeah. And and we shouldn't count Akiyama because, again, that was a business trip, yeah, not a doing tourism. Work. So, yes, you are correct. And so, and also we should say that all of these trips so far are orbital trips. You're reaching orbital velocity. You're actually orbiting the Earth as opposed to suborbital, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So, uh, Tito goes up there, uh, spends probably, n- Space Adventures does not share how much money each person spent in order to get there. And that would be rude. The amount of money changes depending upon when and how the person goes up and how long they go up. But, but uh, uh, people like to speculate on how much these yeah. trips cost. So the the estimation is roughly around $20 million U.S. to go up there. Ooh. Uh, and he went up for uh, a week, essentially. And, uh, and what happened was Space Adventures was able to, when I say up there, I don't think I've actually mentioned where he went. The International Space Station is where he went. So, because Mir was no longer an option, the ISS became the, the one location you could go to, and Space Adventures was able to secure that. At the time, NASA, not so thrilled with this option. They felt that the ISS was really a scientific facility and that to bring tourists in would jeopardize actual legitimate science, not to mention devalue the whole you know, concept of what the ISS was. Uh, they were also not uh, – the U.S. and Russia were not really having the best of relations right that very moment. Yeah. They, had, they had just had that espionage scandal, and uh, uh, the U.S. had kicked a bunch of foreign dignitaries out of out of our country, and Russia had, in exchange, kicked a bunch of our dignitaries 
dignitaries out of yep. their country. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was pretty pretty upset with everybody else. Russia was um, threatening to defund their portion of the ISS entirely. Yeah, it was it was kind of a you know I'm not gonna lie little shaky time it was yeah but i actually think that this tourism thing might have brought everyone together with the promise of money (laughs) (laughs) could have so yeah he went up and spent a week there and then came back down and uh and and set the precedent and since then um i believe six other people have gone up i can tell you their names actually uh so there's there's uh, mark shuttleworth was the next one he was a a businessman from south africa uh, paid also probably around 20 million dollars he went up in 2002 spent 11 days up on the iss gregory olson paid about 20 million in 2005 from october 1st to october 11th uh, then you had Anushe Ansari. Uh, she paid around twenty million in two thousand six for a little over a week uh, in September. She was an Iranian American who um, who was a telecommunications entrepreneur and, and the first woman to to go up as a space tourist. And she she blogged all of her experiences about it. And the blog is still up, and it gives me so many feelings. I highly recommend that everyone go check that out. I'll see if I can remember to link it on social. Next, we have uh, Charles Simoni, who went twice. He liked it so much, he went a second time. Uh, he went in 2007 for 15 days, and in 2009 he went up again for 14 days. And estimates say they paid around $25 million for the first privilege and around $35 million for the second one. And you might wonder, hey, how's this dude afford all these crazy vacations? Well, he's the guy who essentially oversaw the production of a little... Uh, software suite called Microsoft Office. Oh, yeah. So no big. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so if you've ever used Word or Excel or in PowerPoint, this is the you guy who sends someone to space. Yeah, you, you, twice. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's worth around a billion dollars. So uh, that you know, not an insignificant sum of money, but he could afford it. Uh, next is the guy who I actually know who went to the International Space Station, Richard Garriott. Richard Garriott, a.k.a. Lord British, he's the guy who created the Ultima series of computer role-playing games, mm-hmm. uh, and someone I met when I was a kid and stayed in contact with him for quite a few years. I've lost touch with him. Uh, I have not really talked about his experiences in space. Uh, he's a busy man, so I, huh. I don't have any first-hand no- uh, or even second-hand information to give you. Someday we are going to do a text-up episode about him, but the final person we've got on here... Guy Laliberté. He's a Canadian, so it's probably actually Guy at this point. <laughs> I guess it all depends on whether or not you're in Quebec. Um, but Guy Laliberté, thank you, went up in 2009. He paid probably right around $40 million to do so. And uh, he comes from, uh, he, he got his money from a little show that got a little bit of popularity, particularly if you've been to, say, Las Vegas recently, Cirque du Soleil, where I think every show in Vegas is now Cirque du Soleil. So did he get to do acrobatics and eat fire in space? Uh, I would say no to the fire, and you kind of have to do acrobatics once you're up there. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, walking is would be an amazing trick up in space. So I bet he did it. He Just, probably did. He probably did. So th- those were the, the, uh, f- that's officially the list of people who have been to space as quote unquote tourists. Although I should say that most of them hate that word because they actually did stuff up there as opposed to just going on a vacation. I think the technical term might be private astronaut. Private astronaut is what some of them like. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple, there were some, 
one one person said something like uh, uh, um, uh, private space traveler. Like it was just it, there were all these different little variations on it because no one really wanted it to just be Do- uh, Doctor, tourist. Doctor Space Love. Doctor <laughs> Space Guy. Yeah, yeah. And, that would and- just be the last one. That would be for Gee. And Sari also pointed out that, you know, she was like, I spent like six months training for this, guys. It's not it's not like I was just like, oh, hey, space trip. Yay. Yeah. Like, uh, it, yeah. it's, it's pretty I serious. I didn't book an all inclusive package. And right. Then, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, the the trips are pretty serious stuff, right? I mean, you have to go through lots of training. Now, granted, it depends upon uh, which agency you're looking at, you know, how they do this. But, you know, they, they had to do training to learn everything from how the various systems work so they could operate any given system. Uh, they had to know how to react in the case of an emergency. They had to seem at least healthy enough that they could take that trip without uh, either causing themselves injury or making someone else sick. Okay, well, let's talk about the different kinds of uh, private space travel that are available. First of all, like what technically counts as space? How high do you have to go? Well, uh, the United States says that you have to go about 80 kilometers up or 50 miles, but that's not that the only... That doesn't seem very high. It's also not the only definition. I mean, the, the Federation Aeronautique Internationale sets the altitude at 100 kilometers, which is around 62 miles high. That's uh, just because it's a round number in the metric system. What do they know? <laughs> whereas whereas the 50 miles is a round number in the other... <laughs> see, we... That, but, that argument doesn't... But that's an American work. number. Okay, I, I see. All right, so is it... America. Um, okay, so yeah, space, it doesn't have a, we, there's not like a specific border, right, that you can just point at and say, on this side, you are not in space, and on this side, you are in space. It's kind of more of a, it's kind of a more of a wibbly wobbly spectrum y thingy. It's a gradation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so. It all depends upon uh, your point of view, I guess. Also, another thing we should point out is, you know, like I said, these are all orbital space trips. You know, they were in orbit around the Earth. You're talking about the tourists who've already gone. The tourists gone. who've already gone. They went and to the ISS. That's the only yeah. thing that had been available was orbital. There were no suborbital specific uh, missions for sp- for space tourism. Okay, well, let's talk about, uh, let's sort of go from the bottom to the top. So suborbital is less than what these people who already went did. What is it? Okay, suborbital, it's it's not necessarily an altitude thing. It's more of a speed thing. Yeah. Okay, so in order to be in orbit, you have to attain orbital velocity. That means you're going at a speed where you are constantly, uh, you, the, your fall toward the Earth is at the same uh same rate as the curvature of the Earth in the sense that you're always falling just beyond where the Earth is. You're staying in that same relative point, um, not necessarily in geosynchronous or geostationary orbit, but, you know, that's you're, you're going at this incredible speed. So you have to maintain that speed in order to maintain orbit. If you drop below that speed, then you're going to start falling toward the surface of the Earth. That's what's a suborbital trip. So if you were to go fast enough so that you got up to the altitude where more or less you argue that, yes, I'm in space, I'm 100 kilometers up or I'm, you know, 80 kilometers up, depending upon whose definition you're following. Uh, but your speed is not so much that you're going to stay in orbit. That would be suborbital. So, again, it's not so much an altitude thing as it is a speed thing. It does mean that it's slightly – I hesitate to use the word easier, but it, it's something that's more achievable if you are able to design the right kind of aircraft for it. 
Um, and that's really what a lot of the space tourism companies out there are looking at are, is the suborbitable orbital option also would mean that the uh, the cost of putting someone up there would be lower so you would see lower price tags attached to those tickets than say 20 to 50 million dollars per pop which I think we mostly can argue is not within the grasp of your average tourist. Uh, right. Most consumers can't really drop that kind of cash. Yeah, and yeah. we'll cover more of that in another episode about the, the costs of space travel and how could this actually come into the grasp of the average traveler. So when we talk about suborbital, right now we have to talk about, all right, who who, who is offering up a suborbital Travel plan, Richie Branson, right? Well, eventually. <laughs> well, well, no, oh, well, no one, right? No one, right? No one's, very one's moment, doing but it two, today. Two companies are uh, have solid plans in place. Yeah, so that that's something we definitely need to stress, though, is that no one's doing it yet. Uh, but in when you say solid, what you mean is like you can go to their website and start booking right now. Sure, I, I mean, could also book lots of trips to fictional places. I'm not going to get there anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, you, you can, and well, I mean, I, I think that the way that I'm defining it is that they are capable of doing at least a test flight with the yes. equipment that they currently have. Right. There, in fact, there was a test flight of Virgin Galactic's uh, uh, aircraft that they're planning on using for suborbital trips just uh, a few days before the recording of this podcast. We're recording this on January 14th, 2014, and on January 10th, they held a, a test flight, and it was really to check out the, the rocket control system. So this was the first time they had had an actual live human pilot behind the controls uh, to test this to make sure it worked, and everything worked perfectly. So it's a great story. However, you should also remember... The first time Richard Branson talked about Virgin Galactic was back in 2004, and at the time he was projecting out to have the first flights taking travelers to a suborbital pathway to be in 2007. So, you know, we've gone a decade since he announced this, essentially, more or less, and we have not yet hit that first flight. And it's, you know, it, it tells you a couple of things that these these tasks are way more complex and uh, and more expensive than people had anticipated when they first started thinking about it. it getting into space is not a trivial matter. So um, it's not to say that this is impossible or we shouldn't pursue it, but rather that by by seeing how far off we were from the projections, we have to keep that in mind. And I, I've actually seen some people suggest that 2014 might be the make or break year if we don't see uh, some some um, market su- success from these these uh, un- these different companies that are trying to have this. That it might end up pulling some of the enthusiasm yeah, out of it. People are going to start getting disillusioned, right? Um, yeah, okay, so let's take a look at these companies like Virgin Galactic and yep. SpaceX who want to offer suborbital flights. What does this flight actually look like? What happens on it? Uh, well, you go up into uh, the, again, depending upon what the altitude is, you go up into space, but again, at, at, a, speed, at a speed where you are not going to go into orbit, but you will have at least a few minutes of weightlessness, as well as the opportunity to view stars without any sort of twinkling because you're not going to have any atmosphere in the way. So you're going to see the stars as they would appear if you were out even further into space. Uh, you're going to have a great view of the Earth. You're going to be able to see the, see curvature. the curvature. Exactly. Yeah, you'll be able to see the curvature of the Earth. And uh, also, because you would be traveling in a fully pressurized cabin, you would not necessarily have to wear a full spacesuit. 
Um, this would be something where you might be wearing a jumpsuit, but not a full spacesuit. The whole trip would last 90 minutes from takeoff to landing. Wow. So uh, only a few minutes of those would be spent in quote unquote space, but you would have that opportunity to be in an environment that relatively few people have experienced. Yeah. So you get, uh, a pretty unique and amazing view. You get to experience some weightlessness. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of other companies working on this besides Virgin Galactic and SpaceX. Uh, two that are kind of interesting are Blue Origin, which is a fairly secretive company. That one was founded by Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. So Do you, you figure out what the deal with them is? Uh, well, they're looking at vertical takeoff and landing rockets that can be used over and over again. So it's a slightly different approach. A lot of these other spacecraft are craft that would be launched from another aircraft. Right. So they kind of piggyback onto an aircraft and then launch while they're already in the air so that they've already got that initial boost, boost going. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it would be a rocket. Blue Origin's looking at rockets that would take off from the surface of the Earth and then return to the surface of the Earth. Um so, but they're pretty quiet about the whole thing. And then there's X-Core Aerospace, which is also looking into spacecraft. Their, a lot of their early work was mostly in rockets, actually building the rockets that would take a spacecraft up into space. Uh, but they're now working on the craft itself. I love that uh, Virgin Galactics is called the Enterprise. Aww. Uh, that's great. VSS Enterprise. Uh, it's Huzzah. based off um, Spaceship Two. Which in turn was based off Spaceship One. You might, guys might remember that was the, the spaceship that actually won the Ansari X Prize for, uh, achieving suborbital flight. It mm-hmm. was unmanned, mm-hmm. but, um, it, it achieved the flight, won the $10 million, and was immediately retired. Huh. Ansari X, by the way, uh, being funded by, uh, our, our friend Ansari, who is one of the six, uh, who went up into space. Yep. Uh, she has also been really excited. I, she and her husband, I suppose, is, is more fair to say, or, or one of her family members. I'm not sure if it's her husband or not. Right. She obviously had a life changing experience going up to the ISS and wanted to, uh, to encourage the privatization of space exploration, space travel, which could, in theory, bring that closer to a large, a much larger audience, right? Right. So, uh, so, so how much are we looking at for this kind of space? Flight? Well, uh, originally in 2004, a ticket, a reservation for the uh, Virgin Galactic flight would cost you about $200,000. Now it's more like $250,000. I guess if you uh, adjust for inflation, it's probably not a whole lot of movement there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's not, it's still not cheap, but $250,000 is, is much less expensive than that 20 to 50 million dollar price tag of going to the ISS. Uh, so that's your suborbital plan. If you want to experience what it's like to go up into space, but not go all the way out into orbit and visit a space station somewhere and hang out there for a few days yeah. and pay some millions upon millions of right, dollars. Right. So that, that brings us up to orbital flights. So this is where this is what we've seen before. However, going all the way. Yeah, right, at least all the way out into orbit. Um we, we can go even further in a little bit. But uh going all the way out into orbit right now is not viable in the sense that um space adventures cannot book a flight for you right now, now to the ISS. They're still advertising them. Yeah. Basically, but they they just as, ISS isn't putting anybody up at the moment. Right. As of 2010, what happened was uh, there were plans to ramp up activity aboard the International Space Station, which essentially meant that there was no room for uh, people in Hawaiian shirts and flip-flops to come up there and muck around with all the, the science and whatnot. So the 
the, uh, the space adventures folks and the folks at the Russian Space Agency essentially said, for the time being, this is on hold. Uh, we'll tell you when you can go again. Uh, originally, they were looking at possibly starting up again in 2013, saying, hey, you know, now we're no longer sending so many cosmonauts up to the ISS each time. We've got more flights. We can actually book a person every now and then. But that turned out not to happen. You know, it just didn't work out properly. So 2013, you still can't go there. Right now, the earliest they're saying that they'll probably be allowed to send people back up will be 2015. And again, that's mostly because of the Russian space program and the fact that, you know, there's limited space. That's those Soyuz capsules can only hold uh, a few cosmonauts. And if uh, those cosmonauts are needed for a specific mission, Mm -hmm. then there's no space to bring anybody else. Uh, Right. And since we don't have a uh, any NASA shuttles. Right. Yeah. That's that's the only way up there right now. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you're getting up there. So um, although some companies are working on alternatives. Yeah. Yep. SpaceX might offer private flights up to the ISS in the future. Uh, They have already demonstrated that they were able to dock a Dragon capsule that was unmanned, but they were able to dock it with the ISS perfectly fine. Um, so that was kind of a proof of concept that once they have proven you know, to, to everyone that the Dragon capsule is safe, that's going to support life, it's going to uh, have all the features in there that's necessary to keep people from from perishing in space, because as we established before, space is trying to kill you. Space hates you. Yep. It's uh, all about perishing. Once they once they get to a point where they're able, they're so cheerful. Once they're able to get to a point where they're able to prove that uh, all of that is perfectly fine, then there's the potential to actually uh, transport private citizens up there. There's, as far as I know, there's nothing specific where you can actually reserve anything or even say, you know, send me more information about this. It's more like they have the potential to do it, but I don't know that they have commented publicly about actually doing that as a business um but it's certainly something that they could they could uh, have the capacity to do once they prove the the technical aspect um also they have boeing who's working on the cst 100 cst stands for crew space transportation and it's part of nasa's commercial crew development program or cc dev and so this was uh, another opportunity for nasa to reach out to the private uh, industry and say, can you guys help us bridge this gap that we have? Because we don't have that program anymore. We can't, we don't have a spacecraft that can do this. And, you know, while we might have something in development, it may take us you know, a decade or longer to get it to finish. Uh, whereas you guys could start working on it right away. So Boeing did work on that. There were some things that were holding it up. Mostly they were money, uh, but that you know, they've, they've received funding, a couple of different rounds of funding on it and have worked on that. Th- that could also potentially dock with both the ISS and, uh, if anyone were to actually build a private space station, something that's privately owned by a corporation or individual who has a ridiculous amount of money, um, then it could also dock with that. And in fact, Boeing's business plan was more or less saying, all right, well, for this to make sense for us, we need to have this much funding up front, and I forget what the number was, is huge. It had way too many commas in it. Mm-hmm. And then they said, and we need there to be essentially two space stations because that would make it feasible for us to, to operate this. So right now there's only the one, <laughs> but you know, that, that might, that might change sometime in the future. Do you guys want to talk about some of those, uh, private space stations that are, have been in planning? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, 
I I didn't really want to brag, but uh, I got a little DIY project going on in my garage. <laughs> Uh, I took one of those little fabric uh, dog bed things. Uh-huh. And, okay. uh, I was going and to ask how your dog was involved, but that's but that's good. Okay, he's 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 got ambitions. You, you know? got a steel drum garbage can, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I've written um, "rocket" on the side of it, so uh-huh. it's official. Oh, that's the important. Part. No, no. Okay, so bought a bunch of M80s. We're we're joking around, but as it turns out, there there actually there is a company that is working on building. Uh, building actual space station stuff for private uh, use and in fact has launched two prototypes already right uh so when you think about space tourism um suborbital flights seem like they could be really cool but if you want to get that full space experience you are going to be depending on some kind of permanently orbiting module right, right? yeah um and the iss is kind of busy right now like yeah. space adventures still says we we hope we get back there but yeah we, know, don't, we know. don't know we the earliest we can say is 2015 yeah uh what might be a really good option if you want to travel to space go around the earth in orbit is just to have a dedicated space lodging yeah where you can stay now the company that has built a couple of prototypes that ha- and they are in orbit right now uh, is called bigelow aerospace now they go so far as on their website to say they are not building a space hotel that is not what they're doing however what they are doing is they're building they're building space these expandable space habitats that could potentially be put to any sort of use you can imagine, which could include actual space tourism. If a company wanted to end up essentially kind of leasing this from Bigelow and then turning it around and, and selling space to space tourists, that is entirely possible. Right. Essentially what they've said is that they anticipate that they're primary customers at least early on are going to be countries yeah. um mm-hmm. or Doing major science and- yeah or major corporations right. right so a major corporation that needs to do some sort of scientific study that will only work in a low gravity or zero g environment you know your options are pretty slim here on earth yeah <laughs> so um, this would this would open up options cuz again it's also difficult to make sure that you can get that same sort of work done aboard the ISS they have their own agenda that is pretty full so if you had an alternate like you could go to this other space station and be able to do that work there that would be huge yeah but there are two ways this might pertain to space tourism one is that well okay let's say a company that just wants to lease it out as a space lodging is the company that leases it from bigelow and that so they're they're running it now yeah and that's what they decide they want to use it for or a similar technology could be used to build another space station sure like yeah um and well let's talk about what the technology is yeah. what, how do these things work so they are expandable uh also you could call them inflatable they have fabric and metal joints that uh no one was really sure if they were going to be able to hold up to the rigors of space but in fact like i said they've launched two prototypes the gemini one or i'm sorry not gemini genesis the genesis one and genesis two uh i don't know how i got that mixed up i mean Star Trek 2, come on. So uh, the Genesis uh, prototypes have been launched successfully into orbit and are continuously gathering information for Bigelow. They're, they're taking scientific yeah. measurements. They have cameras all over them. Those don't have any people in them. They do just not. To be they, clear. Are, they are not meant to be habitable. 
they are meant to be kind of like uh, orbiting science stations that are really to gather more information so that Bigelow can continue to innovate and create habitable environments. In fact, they're working on one called the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, or BEAM. Yeah, they're working with NASA on that one. Yep, because uh, again, NASA's looking at the private industry to help pick up some of the I hate to use the word slack, but, you know, to help help them out. Financial slack, certainly. Yeah. Sure. So they they were looking at uh, creating BEAM as a potential module that would add on to the International Space Station. It would effectively expand the ISS. It's kind of like, you know, building an extension to your house in a way, except yeah. this particular extension is inflatable. It's expandable. Um, and uh, it would really only be there for a couple of years just as sort of a proof of concept. It wouldn't necessarily become, like, it wouldn't be the new living quarters for the crew aboard the ISS. It's more to make sure to test that this concept is, in fact, viable and could end up creating a modular space station that could be uh, adjusted multiple times while in orbit. Yeah, uh, beyond that, they've got another proposed uh, model called the BA-330. Uh, or the or just the Alpha Station for short, I believe. I think A is for Alpha in there somewhere. Right, yeah. Uh, it's the proposed larger habitat, and it's going to provide... 330 cubic meters of usable internal space, which is quite roomy when it comes to space. Yep. <laughs> um, but the modules can be linked together so you can create more expansive space stations just by addition. Yeah, basically. you chain them together. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Bigelow claims this habitat's going to provide better protection than the ISS in terms of radiation and ballistic impact. We don't know if that's true, but that's what they say. Yeah, um, yeah. And then also it'll have fore and aft propulsion, so it'll be sort of self-regulating in terms of its position and, and orbit speed. Uh, solar panels for independent electric power and four large viewing windows so you can look at the Earth, the stars, and everything in between. Yeah, George and- Clooney flying by. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, for for this experience, they're estimating uh, uh, flight rates of between 26 and 36 million, depending on what flight carrier you choose. Um, uh, Can uh, you they, imagine <laughs> the miles you'd, you'd rack up? Like, you'd be medallion immediately. Yeah. Um, that's just for the flight. And then for the exclusive use and control of a third of that 330 cubic meter space, um, that would be an additional 25 million. That's uh yeah. So you know, on those flights, you still only get one bag of peanuts. Yeah. Don't open a bag of peanuts in low gravity environment. Just trust me on this one. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about let's let's say that let's say that we've gone into the future by about let's say fifteen years, and now space tourism like this is. I mean, this is what everybody does, right? Okay, so suborbital. If you if you if you want to be on a budget, or you know, you, you know, can go up to orbital if you got a little extra money. All but, the kids are going like, Dad, I don't want to go to space again. Yeah, come on, orbit. Flags. Orbit is boring. So, what could be the next step? The moon. That's a that's another step. Yeah. Uh, the sun. Bad oh. idea. <laughs> Bad idea. Tell you what, I'll. I'll let you do. Uh, I'll let you do a quick trip to Death Valley, and you can just uh, experience that, and it'll be as close as we want you to get to the sun. Hey, Death Valley's cool. I respect our national parks, but anyway, it's actually quite the, warm. The moon, the moon would be a cool place to go, It'd and this is my cool. logic. Hundreds of people have been to space. Not many people been to the moon. What, 12, 13? Not, not about 12. 12 people have yeah. been, 12 people have set foot on the moon. Unless you believe Apollo 18 is truly a documentary. Yeah. In which case we'll knock that up to 14. Or if you believe Apollo 11 was fake. 
<laughs> okay. Then you knock it down. Yeah, but then now you're going to just get punched by an astronaut. We've already seen that happen before. Yeah. Not you specifically, but in general. You deserve it. Okay, who's okay. saying they're going to go to the moon? There's a company called Golden Spike Company. Uh, Golden Spike, That's obviously. a great name. Well, yeah, and, and of course their, their name is giving homage to the Transcontinental Railroad, that final golden railway spike. Um, but, uh, yeah, their, their plan is to have a system where they would have a, a, a ship take you all the way to the moon. You'd land on the moon. You would actually be on the moon itself, then return home. Cause, you know, just going to the moon and leaving you there apparently is not such a crazy vacation. <laughs> um, it's the last one you'll ever take. It'd be terrible. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's a little bit of a, a wallet buster, uh, as they're currently projecting it out to be. At seven hundred and fifty million dollars per passenger, and a required two passenger, uh, uh, yeah, minimum, minimum, yeah. Right. Well, so you either pay seven hundred fifty million dollars and get a friend to go with you, right, or you pay one point five billion and you can stretch out your legs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the the lo- the craft would allow for three people, right? You'd have right. a pilot and then two passengers. And so if it were just you, you'd have to end up spending the extra money uh, in lieu of a second passenger, very much as if you were taking a cruise. You know, you're going on a cruise, but you're just going by yourself. Well, you got to book a room for, based on double occupancy, even though it's just you going. Same sort of thing. Although I don't think they'd have as many bands playing Jimmy Buffett hits on the <laughs> lunar lander. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, they, they, they are partially serious about it. They're serious enough anyway to have contracted uh, Northrop Grumman for yep. a new lunar lander design. Yep, and they, it's a company that's known for its uh, engineering, so you know, that is pretty serious. Uh, Space Adventures also has talked about trips to the moon, however... Uh, not not getting out, though. Yeah. What uh, What's that? Not not walking on the moon. Well, oh, not, no, no, no. Not no. even touching down like, on the getting surface. Out, like, getting out of what? The Earth's no. orbit? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Just look up there. Now pay me a hundred bucks. Well, no, people should. <laughs> these are ex- uh, quite different moon yes, yes, experiences. Yes. Yeah, no, I was going to get to that. Yeah, Space Adventure's approach is not landing on the moon at all. It's to go do one orbit around the moon and then return to Earth. So in other words, you would travel out to the moon. Uh, you would travel around the far side of the moon. We don't say dark side, people. There is no real dark side of the moon in the sense that, you know, the dark side is whatever side happens to be facing away from the sun at that moment, but all sides of the moon eventually get sun exposure. Um, it would be the far side of the moon. So you get to see the far side and then you'd which, come back. Which to Earth. looks weird. Do you ever look at pictures oh, of yeah, it? Oh yeah, it's totally covered in craters and yeah. Uh, it's essentially. It just doesn't look like the moon we know. You can, well, because <laughs> we never see that side. Right. <laughs> and there's a side that's always facing the Earth, but there, that side is not the one that always gets the uh, sunlight. That's why I go crazy when I hear people talk about the dark side of the moon. But yeah, you get to see the far side. Not a lot of people have done that. So uh, you get out there and back. That would be far less expensive than $750 million. Only a paltry $100 million. Piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> hey, when you put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so, the you know... Again, we're talking about inc- incredibly expensive trips that only a tiny portion of the population could go on. Okay, I've got my hand raised. Yeah. I've got a question. What, what, what is it, Joe? 
Somebody's got to be talking about Mars, right? A lot of people talk about Mars. <laughs> who, who, is anybody actually saying, I will take private astronauts to Mars for, for space tourism there? David Bowie did, but don't think he was being serious. Uh, I read about one, the, the Inspiration Mars Foundation, uh, that was planning a privately funded Mars flyby for 2018. Um, and that would be a two-person flight using existing commercially available space equipment um, lasting 501 days round trip. Do they look legit? Uh, there have been no contracts or anything like that announced, which either means that, uh, they're serious about it, but no one else believes them, um, or that- Or it's just smoke. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to say at this Martian point. Martian smoke. And I don't it's know. It's red. 20, 2018 is soon. It's planned for 2018 specifically because the orbits of Earth and Mars are going to be such that we could have that kind of short trip, mm. but- Yeah, so- I don't uh, know. I don't know. That's, that's an awfully short deadline. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty. Uh, that is pretty tight. And then, of course, there's the Mars One project, which is not so much about tourism as it is relocation. Uh, though you could say, I guess, those are technically private astronauts, right? Yeah, those are private uh, astronauts. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because I mean, they were talking about the whole, uh, you know, reality television show aspect where people are essentially competing for the ability to be one of these early uh, settlers of Mars. Because you wouldn't be coming back. It's like a vacation in that, like, Gilligan's Island was a vacation. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Just give me three more coconuts and I will get us back to Earth. Uh, yeah, so, so again, not really space tourism in that sense. But it's the sort of thing that if it were to work out, and by the way, we should point out, and we've pointed it out before on this show, but I'd say that the majority of folks out there who are in the space industry are at best skeptical of the Mars One plan. The more that I hear about Mars One, the more skeptical I am, in yeah, fact. Yeah, but 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 if something like that worked, whether it's on the timeline that they have proposed or one that actually is what people would consider to be more realistic, whatever, if that were to work, that would at least lay the ground for the potential for space tourism down the road. It's one of those things where, you know, this has to happen first before we ever get to a point of, you know, when are we going to go there for fun? If no one had landed on the moon yet, we wouldn't really be talking about space tourism trips that could potentially go to the moon. Okay, I've uh, noticed two things all these trips have in common. Yeah. One, they sound really cool. Two, I can't afford them. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. What we're going to do is we're going to have another discussion about space tourism in our next episode where we talk about what are the barriers? Why is it so expensive to go into space? And are there any proposals that could make it less expensive? So that's going to be a, a, an entirely different conversation, uh, but we look forward to having it. We hope you guys enjoy listening to it. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you go to fwthinking.com. That's our website where we've got all the videos. We've got the blog posts. We've got podcasts. Lots of cool information there. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Google+. You'll find us at FW Thinking, and we will talk to you again from space really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.